Welcome to this conversation. I'm your host, Teresa Keller, and my guest today is Charles Vess. And Charles Vess is a really big deal. And there is an opportunity to see the latest production of The Mind of Charles Vess on October the 17th. So we're kind of using that as the event to spark this discussion, but we're going to review the wonderful life and times of Charles Vess. Welcome to this conversation. Thanks for having me. Charles Vess, according to Wikipedia, and there's all (laughs) kinds of stuff in there about you, is an American fantasy artist and comics artist. So in journalism, we talk about finding the lead. So the big stuff and the new stuff is the calendar and book release that you have scheduled. But let's talk about career-wise. What's the biggest thing you've accomplished that people would like to hear about? Making a living as an artist. (laughs) So you're not a starving artist anymore. Were you a starving artist? The first four or five years in New York City, I, I grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia. I went to school at VCU in Richmond. Uh, then I worked for a couple of years for some friends that were doing commercial animation. And then in 1976, I moved to New York City to try and do what I do now. And for those first four or five years, I did my laundry in the bathtub uh, <laughs> and I ate more peanut butter and jelly sandwiches than you can possibly imagine. Well, did so. you have to wait on tables and do other things or did you? No, no. I, I, I was living with another artist that had, uh, it had a two bedroom apartment and he moved half of it down to a studio and uh, he needed someone to be in there and it was rent control. So it was $125 a month, which, you know, is pretty amazing. And by the time I left 12 years later, it had gone up to $250 a month. Oh, wow. So, Which still seems like nothing compared to yes, today's. You add a couple zeros onto that per month. That's what I was going to say. It's probably $2,500 a month now. Yes. Yeah. So, so what did that teach you those days of five years of trying to make it? Uh, just being stubborn. <laughs> it uh, present yourself when you went to see art directors as you usually tried to eat a meal before you went so you wouldn't be really hungry when you got there. Uh, be clean. Uh, you had to somehow get across the impression that um, you could do the job they were offering. You had to be, you know, somehow they need they need they were betting their job that you were going to do your job uh, because that's what an art director does. And you had to give them some kind of clue as to, oh, you can do this. It's, it's, I, it's partly talent, it's partly luck, uh, and it's partly just uh, determination. So you learned how to sell yourself and, and, and show that you were confident so that other people would have confidence in you. Let me go back to the question, though. What's the thing that most people would recognize you for, the big stuff? Well, I wrote and drew and painted a Spider-Man graphic novel. That's Uh, right. And I wanted to hear it from your mouth. And I wanted you to say it again. Just say it one more time. This is amazing. It's a a Spider-Man graphic novel. I did a number of paintings, a couple stories. And there are people that still want me to draw more Spider-Man today. And then the other thing I did was start working with Neil Gaiman who uh, became more and more and more famous as we went along. And the first comic book that we drew together was an issue of The Sandman. That's 
just now becoming a Netflix series. It's an audible series. It's, it's been very popular and it's still selling today. Those two things are, are what people mostly know me from. Yeah, I would say that's a rise to stardom. I mean, you, you, some people might say, oh, it's popular culture, but it, it's, uh, and that, that's why everybody knows it. But to you, it's art, right? Yes. How? Yes. Explain it's, that. Explain the art of it all. Explain the art of it all. Now, how's that for a uh, question? Of, as far as your view of Spider, the Spider-Man series. Well, Spider-Man, I grew up reading Spider-Man. Uh, I did gymnastics in high school because I was too short to play basketball. Uh, my hands are too little to grab a basketball. Um, so I did gymnastics thinking about being Spider-Man. And then when I moved to New York City, the architecture, the older architecture of the city is beautiful. And most of it's way up high. And I kept thinking, gosh, if you're Spider-Man, you can get up there and see all that stuff. So uh, when I finally got the opportunity to draw him, uh, I included a uh, a pretty dense eight or 10 pages of New York city. And then I took him to Scotland because I didn't want to keep drawing windows too long. <laughs> I, I really wanted to draw Scotland. So and I did a lot of traveling in Scotland and took photographs and used that. Uh, but it's just, it's amazing what uh, iconic character Spider-Man is. And then with the movies, he's become even more so. And people always want to talk to you about him. Uh, and have, did I meet Stan Lee, you know, <laughs> who uh, was half of the team that created Spider-Man? But You did not. Okay, so we've put that to rest. You said when you got the opportunity to draw Spider-Man, how did that happen? Well, I knew an editor that needed paintings done for inventory, which meant that they would have uh, a cover piece that they could use when they were in extreme, <laughs> when a book, uh, the editor-in-chief might look at an issue of a comic and cancel it, and they'd have to redraw it, and then they'd need another cover. And I just happened to have a cover in the drawer in the inventory, and they put it on the cover of Web of Spider-Man number one, and uh, it made the sales go up two or 300,000 copies. And that's one I've signed a lot of issues of, and people love that. They remember me for that, for the Spider-Man graphic novel and Sandman and Stardust. So they, they are pop culture, but they are also, I was drawing from my heart. And that I think is the key. There's many, many people that work on Spider-Man or worked on Sandman, but only some of those artists uh, are remembered. My guest today is Charles Vess, uh, extremely well-known American fantasy artist who lives in Abingdon, Virginia. And from what I understand, there would be an opportunity to meet you on October the 17th when you release two things at the Spring House. Tell us where that is, can we come, and what's the big attraction, what's being released? Well, it's a public space. Uh, it's where you, uh, there's a cidery there, tea shop, um, which that will be available. Uh, it's on Courthouse Hill, right next to where they're building that new hotel, renovating a building into the hotel. So it's Close across to Main Street. 
close to Main Street. And uh, it'll be from 2 to 5 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, the 17th. And it's free for anyone that wants to come. There'll be live jazz music played there. And then I'll have any number of pieces of art and prints and the calendar, which was produced by a local woman, uh, Denny Peterson, uh, and printed by AAA. It looks gorgeous, really gorgeous. I'm very happy with it. I've always wanted a calendar, so this was fun. And then the art of Stardust, uh, which is a commercial book that will be all over the world, but it's first available that day. So come and get it. So the first view of the book and the name of the book yeah. is? The Art of, of Neil Gaiman and Charles Vess's Stardust. And it's a, um, a informal history of how the book came to be and, and goes into a lot of detail with a lot of art that's never been seen before. It's a beautiful uh, eight, a nine by 17 inch book. So it's much larger than the publication of Stardust. The color is better. And I, you know, write a few details. And Neil wrote a, uh, Neil Gaiman wrote a intro into the book too. So Sunday, October the 17th from two to five at the Spring House, which is on Courthouse Hill uh, near Main Street, where yeah. the cidery and- uh, In Abingdon. Yeah, in Abingdon. Yeah, I guess that's kind of important. And yes, speaking yeah. of Abingdon, here you are with this international fame and I've seen you out and about and I didn't realize what a big deal you were until <laughs> I went to your art exhibit at William King Museum and people are just making a, such a fuss over you. So we're going to get back to what life is like in Abingdon, but I'm assuming you go to conferences and events and people are clamoring to get your autograph and just talk to you and that when you're not at home doing your routine that you're like this huge celebrity in this fantasy art world. Don't be um, modest. Sure. sure, yes, I do all those things. And I like being here and being fairly anonymous. And um, I get to do what I wanna do. Uh, I met my wife in New York City. Uh, we were both from Virginia. She was from Bristol. Uh, I was from Lynchburg. And uh, we eventually moved down here because it was affordable. And I thought I would be hidden away from the world. <laughs> but in, in uh, 1991, uh, by then the uh, internet started happening and people find you no matter what. And I just kept working for all sorts of people and doing more books that were more noticed. Uh, I've been... I think three different times in the New York Times bestseller list of books. Mostly that's because Neil wrote two of them and Jeff Smith, who created Bone, wrote the other one. Uh, but it was fun to be on that list. I know. And listen to how modest you sound. Oh, yes, I've been on the New York Times bestseller list. And here you are in Abingdon saying you thought you were going to find a quiet place. You just didn't know then that Abingdon is the center of the universe. <laughs> yes, exactly. But you were a shy kid. I, I read that about you. And yes. so when you have to do these things, are you still shy, introvert? Is it hard for you to do those public experiences? I've gotten used to it. I used to, the first time I ever did, you know, I don't know if they still do them in school, but oral book reports. 
Mm-hmm. You remember oral books? Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I talked uh, my English teacher into letting me do this report on a uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, who wrote Tarzan and John Carter Marx. But this was a diff- another book of his. And I spent a whole weekend writing what I was going to say. And this would have been in sixth or no, fifth or sixth grade. And I got up in front of everyone and just froze. And I said, the moon men invaded the earth. The earth people fight back and they win. And I sat down and my teacher looked at me probably with her eyebrow raised and said, is that all Charles? And I'll go, yes, yes, yes. Um, I got an F on my oral book. I'm thinking that was brilliant and she should have given you an A. And I I thought where you were headed with that was that you were going to, the next time you were going to draw your report. No, um, I, I just, over the years, there's been so many times when I've had to talk that I've gotten used to it. And I'm still not, um, I can be in a large room with a whole lot of people as long as the lights are down and I'm showing images up on the screen and talk and it doesn't matter. But standing in front of people and actually giving a speech is still not easy, but I can, I know I can do it. Well, and you know, you can do this because nobody can see us. Isn't that great? That's right. You know, that it's that trick of get the focus on something else so that they're not looking at you. Yep. Well, you uh, have obviously coped, to say the least. And so let's, there are two things. You mentioned your wife, and and we're talking about Abingdon. Let's go with the most important first, your wife. You have a book about your wife. Tell us about that. A book about my wife. Maybe you don't. A Fall of Stardust. Oh, it was, so the book Stardust came out uh, in 1997, and it did very well. And this was, again, with Neil Gaiman, the writer. And, but also in 1997, um, Karen was in a single car accident, spinal cord injury, and um, we had no insurance. A little expensive. Uh, there were a, a lot of people in the arts community got behind us and raised money in various ways. And Neil Gaiman suggested publishing a portfolio with some text by him and an unknown at that time writer, Susanna Clark, who went on to write Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell and Piranesi, and she's an international bestseller. But I got 30 different artists to contribute paintings based on Stardust, and we put it out and raised money to pay off all those hospital bills. And Karen wrote a little introduction that's on the spine of the book, on the flap of the book. Is that book still available? That sounds fascinating. Uh, no, it's uh, we sold out of it. It's the prices on it will spike every once in a while. It depends when uh, uh, Susanna Clark's book came out, and everyone realized she had a, her first story was published in it. People were paying like a hundred, two hundred dollars for this little thin pamphlet thing. Uh, but the price is back down. You can find it on ABE Books or you know, use books places. All right. So it worked to pay the bills. So you didn't have to go bankrupt. I mean, did you really have to pay back? We raised enough money to to pay our bills. And then we got insurance. Yes. (laughs) Would would we like to have a a moment, a break to advise people to get medical insurance? I would say, please get insurance because, uh, you know, the, uh, the neurologist that did the operation to bring her spinal cord back into line 
was it was probably a 45 minute operation and it was $200,000. You need to have some insurance. Yeah. Things happen that you have no control over. And uh, I'm not sure when open enrollment is for uh, health insurance through ACA, but maybe I need to rerun this interview whenever that time yes. period comes. Yes. Remind people. It was, it, was a, it was quite a life-changing experience. Well, how's she doing now? She's doing well. There's still pain, uh, neurological pain and uh, limitation of movement. But she, the doctor said she'd never walk again, but she walks and, and drives and takes care of herself. Well, wonderful. Mm-hmm. And lives here in Abingdon with the internationally famous Charles Vess. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> Except, you know, when you're mowing the grass or lifting rocks to work on things, it, it doesn't, being famous does not help. Yeah, you know, that's what I always was fascinated. I guess it was my naivete about famous people. I used to think famous people and rich people probably never made their own sandwiches, you know, or they probably never cleaned the sink. But obviously they mow their own yards because you just confessed. Yes. What is your life like in Abingdon besides mowing the yard? (laughs) What is a typical Um, day and a, a typical week maybe? Because I'm sure you've got work, you've got social things. What all do yeah. you do to occupy your time? Just what everybody else does. But then, you know, if you if they're going to an office, I come to my studio and I work. Sometimes it depends on whether there's a imminent deadline or not. But sometimes I'll work. I used to work 18 hour days, but I'm as I grow older, <laughs> I, I don't work quite those hours anymore. Um, but, you know, I'm I'm drawing what I want to draw. And it's really fun. It's work, but it is also fun. So I have a certain amount of joy when I'm going to work as opposed to if I had a job. I don't know. I suppose you could have joy if you were going to work at Burger King, but I don't know. It might be harder. <laughs> so, I think it depends on who the boss is. And in your case, yeah, you don't have to worry about that. I don't have a boss. I don't have to lo- a work, a worry about a local economy. And I don't have all the bosses are art directors, but it's a different thing. So you work, you go to your studio and you do joyful work because you're doing what you want and you love what you do. But then you, we've talked about your wife. So in the evenings and on weekends, and I mean, I know we're in the pandemic, but what do you guys do? What do you like to do around Abingdon for fun and entertainment? We've moved, we moved into a house a little over a year ago. So there's constantly things that we're doing to the house which hadn't been lived in in three or four years. So there's a little upkeep to do. But, you know, we love going to uh, Rhythm and Roots Festival each September. Uh, There's various music that happens around. We've got some really good friends down on the river. You know, we got in the summer, we go floating down the river. and uh, You know, a little bluegrass music and a float on the river. It's the best thing in the world. You're part of Abingdon. Let me ask you this question. I, I, I confess, and people can tell by the questions that I'm asking, that fantasy art and the artists that you've named are not people that I'm familiar with. Uh-huh. And I would imagine that it's a kind of a special strata of people who are into this. Do you feel like that in Abingdon and in the community that you inhabit that people do know and appreciate and celebrate what you've done? Well, some do, some don't. Um, it doesn't. I'm doing what I want to do, so it doesn't matter what they think. You know, the crazy artist is like, 
Um, but uh, you know, it, it there's a uh, I, there's a lot of young artists that I talk to that want to move away, and there's a a good reason to move away for a while. But when you go somewhere, like if you moved to New York, it's not just the uh, cost of a sandwich or an apartment that goes up. It's uh, your insurance if you want to drive then the insurance in the car is really expensive. Uh, it goes on and on and on. And this is a very affordable place to live. I, I like it. Since you sell books, you, you're obviously acquainted with the idea of a target audience. Who's the target audience? What are the demographics and the descriptions oh, and the psychographics of... I don't, I don't target them. I, I, for 25 years, I exhibited at... Uh, the San Diego Comic-Con. And that went from, uh, there's maybe 35,000 people the first year. And by the time I left, it was 135,000 people that would show up. It was a huge audience of all sorts of different people. I don't really target an audience. But when you're at Comic-Con, which you have to tell me what that is. It's what is it's a giant pop culture event that's covered in all the media uh, and they promote movies and comics and toys and all sorts of stuff. It's a quite a big deal. I stopped about 10 years ago. I stopped going there. It was just too much work. <laughs> you would make uh, quite a bit of money, but it was just getting ready for it and getting the people that ne you needed to have work for you and the booth space and just not, I'd rather relax. When the people came to your booth, you didn't see any kind of difference in terms of there were more young people or old people or no, no, just everybody, everybody. Every once in a while, it would be fun because uh, Ray Bradbury, uh, who was a writer that I love, uh, came by one day and he wanted to buy a book I had. And when I realized it was Ray Bradbury, I, I gave it to him because I would not be here without having read all those stories. Uh, Joss Whedon, who did Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, came by and bought prints for his daughter once. It's, you know, you never knew who was going to come by. Uh, but uh, known and unknown <laughs> would come by the table. So. Well, you just have to color me ignorant, but I have gone from, oh, that guy's Charles Vest, to that's Charles Vest. So uh, you have a new groupie and a new fan. And also, uh, Charles Vess, I had to look up words that you use. So uh -oh. you are, what is it? You, you use this word to describe your work or something about you. Interstitial. 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 This is, a, it's a, um, a combination of various genres that become one thing. And it's, something that when it was first talked about wasn't happening very often. And nowadays, you know, mainstream writers are writing science fiction, fantasy novels and novel and fantasy writers are writing uh, mainstream novels and uh, musicians will have their influences in classical and bluegrass or classical and folk. And it's all, it's a combination of those things all put together and makes a nice piece of art. Give us the strict definition of interstitial. 
Oh, Lord, look it up. <laughs> I did. It's called Between Things. Yes. So how does that description, that definition, Between Things, apply to you? Uh, it's, the, it's the friction, the frisson that happens between um, someone that draws superheroes and someone that draws forests and fantasy, someone that uh, just uh, accepts various things. Uh, I just read, watched a movie and read a book about this woman, Mary Reynolds, who won the gold award at um, the Chelsea Flower Show when she was 22 years old. And the Chelsea Flower Show is the internationally known, it's like the place to exhibit. And uh, she was talking about magic and magic to her was the look and feel of objects and that trees and rocks have a certain thing that they're saying and all that's interstitial between <laughs> things it's between things did you ever imagine being you know the kind of fine artist where your works hang in galleries and become you know the classics of the era or do you think that actually could be the legacy that you leave behind when people examine your work more closely well I I have had work in various museums. Uh, I've had paintings here and there. You know, there's also print media. People see that perhaps a lot more than going to a museum. They will see it as a print thing or online. And all that, you can help and slightly change the world with everything you do. You know, that was going to be the last question that I was going to ask you. And you just, you're leading me very nicely through this interview. Okay. That's good to know. How do you want to be thought of when, when, when you're dead and gone and your work is hanging in some museums and people are studying you, what do you want them to, to realize about you? Uh, I want them to go out in the woods and, and walk through the trees and relax. I want them to be, uh, there's a line in the, a movie, um, have courage and be kind. Uh, I don't, I think you do, don't need to be jumping up and down and shouting and saying, look at me, look at me all the time. Uh, just do what you really need to do. And eventually someone will notice it. You don't have to, you don't need that immediate gratification. Go somewhere wearing slabs of meat on you so people will notice. Have courage and be kind. My guest, yes. Charles Vess. And Mr. Vess, I'm going to let you one more time remind listeners about this big event on October the 17th and what they what will be happening and how they can be part of it. Okay. It, it'll be in, in Abington at the Spring House. You can Google that if you want. Uh, it's on across from the courthouse. And it's uh, there'll be cider, there'll be wine, there'll be live jazz music, and I'll be exhibiting art and prints and i'll have a, several new books that will be available for the first time and the calendar of my work and uh christmas time's coming up here so it's time to get your gifts all right it sounds good i'm going to do my best to be there and in the meantime i'm so grateful for your time and for your sharing sure. your story with the wehc listeners thanks for asking Absolutely. Charles Vess, American fantasy artist. Go meet him on October the 17th at the Spring House in Abingdon on Courthouse Hill across from the courthouse. You will be glad to be there. Thanks again, Charles Vess. Thank you to the listeners for tuning in. Please stay tuned. 
You've been listening to this conversation. This program airs Wednesdays at 6 and Sundays at 2. You can hear replays at the archive link on our website, wehcfm.com. If you have comments about this show or others, you can email us, wehc at ehc.edu. Thanks again for listening.